I had lots of great feedback about Phone Show 422 proving it's not just shiny, shiny and new, which deserves a place online. But don't worry, this isn't going to be another wasn't Nokia wonderful show, far from it. In fact, I want to highlight the point at which Nokia rather lost the plot. The time is June 2009 and two devices of note to me became available at the exact same time. In fact, three, but I'll come to that at the end. The story so far then, seven years of Symbian dominance in the smartphone world, 60% market share thanks mainly to button and nav key driven Nokia handsets, peaking in 2006 to 2007 as I covered in Phone Show 422, with the design genius in the Nokia N93, E90 and N95 8GB, one of the best smartphones of all time, I argued. But the first iPhone became available shortly afterwards, something of a dumb device but with huge potential, and it was clear that phone user interfaces needed to change across the board. Summer 2008 saw the iPhone 3G in its app store, which helped the device enormously in terms of usefulness. But it was summer 2009 when the iPhone 3GS finally brought a half-decent camera to the mix, and one could no longer dismiss it on imaging grounds. So yes, it was summer 2009 and we had a premium smartphone with fast processor, capacitive touch and good enough componentry to make the competition scramble to keep up. Google's Android was just getting going, perhaps that's another story for another show. But at this stage, Nokia and Symbian had had two years to react to the capacitive touch UI on the original iPhone. The 5800 expressed music in 2008 and its resistive touchscreen with S65th edition, effectively touch retrofitted to the button-driven S60 interface, could be excused on the grounds that it was cheap and that it was a first attempt at touch on S60. But by mid-2009, an availability of the new N97 here, not cheap and yet with the same bastardised S60, excuses were, well, they were just that, excuses. The N97's design was actually quite ambitious cantilevered screen revealing a QWERTY keyboard, a quality camera with lens protection, great GPS, FM radio, stereo speakers and a 3.5mm jack, a mini laptop, camera and sat-nav all in your pocket. However, there was a philosophical disease at Nokia that impacted all of its flagships between 2008 and 2010. Trying to keep build costs down, it skimped on RAM, you'd have thought lessons would have been learned from the original N95, uh, with only 128 megabytes here. It skimped on internal system disk storage at 256 megabytes, not to be confused with the 32 gig mass storage, which was fine. The NAND system disk only offered about 50 megabytes actually free for loading main applications and updates, meaning that many users hit the buffers very quickly. And Nokia skimped on the processor with a 434 MHz single core design and no GPU, crippling all three to save $100 on the build cost. May have looked good to the bean counters at Nokia, but it was a disaster for end users. I did my best with the N97. I used one for the best part of a year on and off. With my Symbian knowledge of the time, now mostly forgotten sadly, I worked round the system disk limitations, installing and directing what I could to mass storage, and I was patient, speed-wise, appreciating the N97's other mini-laptop converged device benefits. But I described the whole process as more of a battle than a pleasure. 
In contrast, Apple simply put in the hardware internals they thought needed and worried about the cost later. Early adopters would pay the extra $100 or even more, they discovered. Now, Nokia and Symbian did what they could to alleviate the issues, producing update after update that improved free RAM after booting, culminating in version 22 firmware a year later, which had the extra benefit of including maps in the OS itself, saving more precious user system disk space. S65th edition itself got updates to adding kinetic scrolling popularized by the iPhone to produce swiping and a responsive UI. But it was all too little too late, being mid-2010 by this point, with the iPhone now up to the classic stainless steel iPhone 4 design. And with even better camera and speaker and a barrage of new Android handsets, all of which had capacitive UIs and fast chipsets. Nokia and Symbian did have a last fling, rewriting a lot of the UI for capacitive touch in Symbian 3 and putting in the best camera ever in a phone in the Nokia N8. Here's my original. Huge sensor, mechanical shutter, xenon flash, it's still top-notch today in 2021, 10 years later. I loved my N8. I even quite liked the companion E7 with the N97-inspired cantilever display and keyboard and the diminutive E6 here, but it was clear that tides were changing and I was part of what was fast becoming a smartphone niche rather than in the mainstream. There was also this fabulous oddball that was the Nokia 808 PureView in 2012, but again, another story for another day. So from top of the smartphone world in 2006-2007 to an also ran by about 2010, what should Nokia and Symbian have done in response to the iPhone? One, recognise that the nav key and button-centric S60 UI was never going to be a good fit for touch, let alone capacitive swipe touch. What was needed was a whole new UI, a complete rewrite for a new generation. Symbian itself did support touch in the UIQ and Series 90 experiments, but these code bases were stylus-centric and got sidelined. Number two, alongside the UI rewrite, for get the bill of materials and create a premium device to rival developing iPhone and copies. This could easily have been accomplished in glass and metal by mid-2009. We could have had a fast device, smooth touch UI, yet with the same great Nokia cameras, batteries and gadgets, and price be damned, but at least it would have existed as an aspirational device. Number three, do something about the organisational mess. Symbian was the organisation and there were licensees with different UIs and ideas. Heck, Nokia had no less than four UIs on top of Symbian at one stage and Nokia itself had four main divisions quite literally competing with each other inside the phone world. I appreciate that these were the formative years for the smartphone industry, but it was utter chaos. Nokia eventually bought out Symbian itself in 2008 and resolved a lot of the UI confusion by 2010 with the Nokia N8 generation, but that proved several years too late. And the rest, adopting Windows Phone, getting bought out by Microsoft, losing all their money and status and then giving up altogether is well-known history, if sad. I should note that I've simplified things here slightly. I've not mentioned Qt or platform security or Nokia's Ovi initiatives or the various underlying Symbian OS versions. These do add lots of extra factors into my narrative, but they're way beyond casual interest. See David Wood's excellent book here if you want to know the complete, and I mean complete, backstory. 
The most telling data point from the Nokia N97's public availability in July 2009 was that we were presented with the review device at the exact same time in the same room as the Nokia N86 here. Traditional S60 button UI, but all glass front, premium design, cutting edge, dual aperture camera, and of the two devices, it was the N86 that I actually loved. It was Nokia doing what it was great at. Now the N97 sold reasonably, but there were lots of complaints about performance. And rather than do a version two, the N97 mini came along, fixing some things, but making others worse. As a smartphone maker, Nokia's credibility took a huge hit among enthusiasts with this generation of devices, 2008 to 2010. And in my opinion, it never really recovered.